0: I'm Dan Schifrin.
1: And I'm Kathy Joller.
0: And this is The Space Between, dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. The Space Between looks at the way culture, as well as Jewish life, often happens in the space between fixed categories or ideas. And today we are going to explore the dichotomy of perception and reality with our guest, Joshua Jay. Joshua Jay is a performer, lecturer, author, and photographer of All Things Mysterious. He has performed in over 50 countries and appears regularly on national television. He has been performing since he was eight years old and was crowned the world champion for close-up magic at the World Magic Seminar at age 17. Now Jay is a headliner at the prestigious Magic Castle in Hollywood and is the author of two best-selling books on magic. He is also the hero of my six-year-old, a budding magician. Welcome, Joshua. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
1: Um, So you're here to perform Tragic Magic, um, which is a show that recounts some of the strangest deaths that have uh, befallen magicians, assistants, and even audience members throughout history. Um, And it also brings to life um, the personality of some of the famous magicians, including Houdini, who is uh, the subject of a show here at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about how the show took form, and uh, were you surprised to learn about some of the Jewish threads throughout magic history?
2: Absolutely. Um, I'm interested in anything and everything to do with magic. It's one of the great things about my job. I don't walk off stage and have some sort of normal life. I'm obsessed with every (laughs) facet of magic, and that includes magic history. So my area of interest gravitated toward magicians, spectators, and assistants who died in the act of magic. I have no idea what that says about me as a person, but that's the morbid fascination, and there had never been any kind of survey or collection to play, you know, put all of these people in context and tell their stories in one place. So I wrote a paper that was later published in Gibisier, which is the uh, Entertainer and Historical Magic Journal. Could you spell that, please? Uh, G-I-B-I-C-I-E-R-E, and that's a, it's a good Scrabble word, <laughs> and um, it means pocket, because at the time, magicians, especially in French, it's a French word, gibisier, Uh, would place objects in these sort of pocket, almost um, like utility belts. And that's called GBCA, and that's the name of the the organ. Um, So anyway, I published this paper there, and I realized that when I shared these stories with people, it was connecting on a certain level. And I think that what it connects to is the same thing that people like in magic tricks. In magic, we try and develop a concept And then raise the stakes. If it's one card, can it be a whole deck? If I can levitate a dollar bill, can I levitate a human? So, taken to its fullest expression, death is sort of the highest stake. So magic that deals with death is inherently interesting to people. And um, I think human decisions and mistakes play a big role. In a lot of these stories, the performer is confronted with a decision or a way of going about something, and he chooses his own fate, so to speak. And I think there's also the car crash mentality where we can't not look at something that's happened, even if it's bad, and the reason we read tabloids. So that's where this talk came from. And I've given it at the previous stops of this uh, marvelous Houdini exhibition, which is now in San Francisco, and I'm really excited about doing it tonight.
0: Um There's a Jewish piece to the presentation that a lot of these magicians who have died have been Jewish. Yeah. Um, Were you surprised to realize that there were so many Jews who were involved with magic? Or is that something you knew already when you started working on the show?
2: Well, the the first question I asked is, why are so many of these magicians who died in clumsy ways Jewish? (laughs) But uh, I'm happy to report I see no connection between uh, their sort of background and how they... ...put themselves in front of loaded guns and and underwater and um, underground escapes.
0: It's not the klutz factor. It's
2: not the uh, klutz factor. Or it is the klutz factor, but everybody is uh, making the mistakes equally. But what does come out is just how many magicians are Jewish... ...and how many have been Jewish throughout history. Now, we're coming at this uh, talk just after I've taken um, a group of VIPs through the Houdini Exhibition... And that question came up, why are so many magicians Jewish? And I think that there are a lot of reasons. I think that historically, when you go back to Europe where white and black magic first separated and you sort of have this separation between the magic that became religion and the magic that became entertainment, you have a career that is accessible to Jewish and oppressed people. In other words, Jews couldn't be just anything they wanted to be in those places, but they could be itinerant performers. They could be traveling performers. Um, Fast forward, you know, hundreds of years to my own experience. I come from a family uh, in which my father has, I think, a, a more standard job as a dentist, but he didn't love being a dentist. And so what came from that is from my earliest memories he would say whatever you choose to do really enjoy it really like it and that was the attitude the attitude was well if magic's the thing then we have to find the best teachers and we have to support and we have to work hard and we have to find a way that you can do this so jews have a special place i think for entertainment in general and they understand the value entertainment isn't frivolous it's really really necessary
0: Um, Could we go back to Europe for a second? Um, A a brief digression, which is that I came to be interested in magic and Houdini again, not from watching magic, but from reading Michael Chabon's book, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, Clay, where um, these two young men create a comic book superhero called The Escapist, which has Houdini-like qualities in a way. Uh, And as you talked about when you were giving this tour earlier, Houdini was able to escape from things in a way that seemed almost metaphysical, and there is something about him as a Hungarian immigrant coming to the states, and um, escaping from history, escaping from his name. That's right. He
2: here is a guy who's five foot three. So already, all other things equal, he's short. He seems at a disadvantage compared to other burly, bigger, stronger men. He's looked at as an immigrant, even though he's born here in the United States, in Appleton, Wisconsin. He is looked at as an outsider. His family speaks with thick accents. Um, he is broke. I mean, he comes from very humble beginnings. His father was a sometime rabbi, sometimes scholar, sometimes moyle. But chains could not hold Houdini. He could escape from anything. What a message, What a metaphor that here's this man who's got the ultimate rags to riches story, he makes all of this money, he can do things that nobody else can do, and remember, and this is why Houdini's considered the first superhero, the first American hero, he isn't famous for the roles he played, he isn't famous for the things that he does in character, like a stage or screen actor, he was famous for being him, he was the personality, he wasn't Fatty Arbuckle, or somebody who played great characters, he was Houdini. And that's quite a thing. and It's quite a metaphor.
1: Yeah, that uh, theme of reinvention is one of the ones that really struck me going through the Houdini exhibition and the fact that magic is this seemingly really malleable um, platform for him to create this this alter ego. And I wonder for you, um, how have you used magic to... Do you have an alter ego as a performer? Like, how have you used it to reinvent yourself? Yeah, it's...
2: For me, it's less about reinventing and more about sharing Mm. that. Um, I chose from a very early age, I I really responded to close-up magic. And I'm lucky because in my lifetime, in the 20 years I've been in magic, I'm 29 now, close-up magic has exploded. It went from being an emerging facet of magic to being
0: the way of doing that. Could you say a word about what close-up magic is for some of our listeners? Close-up magic
2: is more focused on intimate crowds. It has less to do with props. Almost everything I do is borrowed, and it's more about the experience, the shared experience. So for me, at the highest level, magic can be about sharing humanity. And that sounds a little bit corny, but magic can be a vehicle for self-expression. Dance can be self-expression. Movies poetry, writing. Why can't magic be about self-expression? This is the reason why I bring events and things from my life into my work. I'll talk about tonight when I make a tragic magic presentation at the museum here in San Francisco. I'll talk about an injury that I had that almost took away uh, the use of my left hand and how that injury spawned the creation of a trick in which I risk my left hand in front of the audience to sort of make them identify with what I went through when you wake up one day and you're told you may not have use of your hand any longer. I talk in my show about girls I've dated because everybody wants to know. The first thing they want to know is do you use magic to meet girls? So we talk about it. I basically, and I try and do this when I help other magicians, there are things that every audience asks in their head and the best magic acts, just like the best movies, answer those questions. If you're a kid magician, the question is, is this eight-year-old really do magic? Is he any good? And the best eight-year-old magicians answer that question. If it's a female magician, the question that everybody's asking is, I've never seen a girl magician before. Is she going to be good? And it's that female magician's job to say, I'm okay with being a woman. I know it's a little bit different than the archetype you're used to. We're about to have a blast, and I can do this. And so, finding out what those questions are is a lifelong pursuit, and that's what my show is about.
0: It's a little bit not counterintuitive, but it's um, it's interesting that you, instead of creating an alter ego, you go as far as possible into um, conflating your real self and your stage self in a way.
2: That's right. I mean, um, not every magician would be like this, and there are certainly many magicians who are quite different off stage to on stage. Not always for the better. Um, but for me, my ultimate goal, the ultimate compliment when people occasionally tell me this is that they say, you know, when I was talking to you before and after, it was really a seamless transition. I didn't feel like you went and just started performing when the cards came out. It just felt like an extension of you. And to me, that's the ultimate honesty in a profession that's built on deception,
0: C- could i jump in with one more question uh on this uh on this line which is when you're talking about close up magic um i think about the transition in our society to digital and looking at things online and youtube videos and um you know everything is kind of a close up now so i'm wondering whether the style of magic that you've focused on practiced um is especially relevant in this kind of new web age
2: yeah i think you're you're hovering very close to what it is that's made it explode i mean Think of it this way. Houdini, at the turn of the century, 1900, 1910, all the way up through 1926. Houdini is performing at the very infancy of silent pictures. There's no television. There's no HBO. It's largely a theater-based medium. But look at today. How could a magician, myself or anyone else, possibly compete with Avatar? We see things floating We see ships that aren't there, we see creatures with human characteristics moving their cheekbones, everything is perfect, the hair, and it's all digital. Magicians cannot compete on a special effect level. But we don't have to, because we've got something that can't be trumped by technology. Close-up magic is stripped down, it's unplugged, and it's about the experience. There's nothing that can give you the experience of loaning me your coin and I vanish it. That happens without special effects. It's right there and it works precisely because you know there isn't any special effect. George Lucas isn't behind the trick. It's really happening in real time inches from your face. It's a very powerful and I think necessary experience to have, especially in tough times.
1: There's a quote that of yours that struck me. Good magic hides the trick, um, but great magic reveals some sort of truth. And, um, you know, from years in art history classes, it sounds a lot like what so many artists, you know, describe okay. as their calling, um, you know, getting at some sort of truth. And one of the artists from the show, Deborah Apollo, said um, it's basically an artist's job to make people look at what you know, to question what you know. Um, and, you know, Houdini operated in the same arena um, so, I, just you know, reflecting on the show, or you know, in your own creative pursuits, like, um, yeah, how do you see the connection between art and magic?
2: Well, teller of Penn and teller, mm-hmm. the, the one who never talks, said, mm-hmm. uh, "Magic is the difference between what we see mm-hmm. and what we know," and I like that a lot because that uh, presupposes this idea that we aren't talking about an investment of belief. Nobody is asking you when you see me levitate or when you see me make something disappear that you actually worship me or make it look like it's real. I don't think that's realistic. But instead, what I ask and invite my audience to do for their sake is to suspend disbelief. You know what you're seeing isn't real, but that's what makes it fun, is that the rules that govern our lives don't work for those few precious minutes that a magician is on stage and that speaks to this bigger truth. that makes us question what is real and what is not, and break all the rules of physics in the world, but just for those few minutes
0: um, I used to love to watch the x files I think the the tagline or whatever for the show was "I want to believe right and there 's something about um, belief that is ennobling in some way and probably explains something about the Persistence of religion over time, and so I'm curious whether you've thought about um, the issue of belief, and certainly about Houdini and spiritualism and the things he wanted debunked. Do you? How do you think about belief or religion or the history of those things in the context of the work that you do?
2: You get a very unique perspective on just how delicate human belief is, and just how easy it is to coerce and persuade someone if you're in magic for any length of time you'll have stories like the one i'm about to tell you but i have had people come up to me after doing what i call a mind reading presentation it's for entertainment it's divining the initials of somebody who uh, is somebody's first kiss it's kind of light fare it's fun it's intimate it's sexy i have had people come up to me after that trick on a couple of occasions and say My grandmother's in a coma. She doesn't have long to live. Can you please tell me what it is she wants? Think about the power in that statement. Think about how much it takes for that person to open up. Now, throughout magic, magicians have duped scientists. They have convinced the public of things. It's not difficult because we trade in a currency of deception. We don't try to fool the public blindly. We have all the skills and all the history to have fooled the public for hundreds and hundreds of years. So we're very well equipped to fool people. Then it becomes an ethical question. So yes, a magician can persuade people to believe something. How do you use that power? Houdini had just lost his mother, a woman that he revered and loved more than anybody, almost to a to a fault. And... When he lost her, he desperately wanted to make contact with her. And it was being duped by a skeptic, I'm sorry, by a spiritualist that made him a skeptic. He realized that this person who claimed to be able to communicate with his mother was using the same sorts of tactics he used. Well, he became a crusader against spiritualism. Also, for Houdini, it, it fell at a time in his life when he was at a crossroads. He's 50, almost 50 years old at this time, and he isn't the dapper, young, muscle-bound youth that he is pictured as. He had achieved wild success, but now it's time to think about transition. It's like, what does Sean Connery do when he no longer looks like James Bond? What does Mick Jagger do when he's... Well, bad example, he's still (laughs) pulling the rock. But you get the point. It's, what do you do as you transition? And for Houdini, it was to become a debunker of spiritualist activities. And he would go to seances and raid them. He would do exposés. He would get into the spirit photography and show that these apparitions were nothing but camera tricks. And it played a big role. And magicians since then, whether it's the amazing Randy or Penn and Teller, have continued this skeptic movement.
0: You told a story earlier today about um, Houdini's, I don't know, deathbed confession, you may say, when he was injured at a show, and he was a few days later taken to a hospital, and um, he told the doctor there that um, he respected the doctor because the doctor actually did things for people while he is essentially a fake. And I, I mention this now because I think about, you know, this line between life and death, talk about a space between, um, and I don't know, I'm wondering, you know, what would, <laughs> what, what, was Houdini thinking at that moment? Um, Did he really believe that he was a fake? You know, magic
2: is in one way an amazing profession because you get to walk through an incredible door. And I, I can't expect you to really understand what this is like. I get to take people through a doorway. And on the other side, we do the impossible. But the price of being that doorman and taking people through that doorway is we can't see it ourselves. Do you see what I'm saying? The ability to have honed my craft to be able to show you the illusion of the impossible, in a way, shatters the illusion for us. I miss that. I miss... The reason that I got into magic, which was seeing my dad do a trick I couldn't believe, and then seeing David Copperfield on TV do things I didn't think were possible, and then read about Houdini doing impossible things, and the imagination, the the sort of imagery that that conjures up is incredible. But now, years later, after I've honed lots of original material, and I'm lucky to be able to perform all over the world, I don't get that anymore. I get to see it on their faces every night, hundreds of people. And that's amazing. But I miss seeing it myself.
0: Are there are there tricks that you see, or are there magicians um, where you can't figure out what's happening?
2: Occasionally, yeah. And, I mean, I love to be fooled. I'm not a magician with an ego for that kind of thing. I, I love when I am fooled occasionally. But most of the time, it's more an appreciation of the craft. Mo- most of the time, it's more about... Ooh, I like how he put that there. Ooh, I'd never consider taking that card trick and interpreting it with coins. Oh, that's very smart that he switches it there instead of here. These kinds of things. Um, that suspension of disbelief becomes harder when you're the agent of those illusions yourself.
1: Is there anything else that makes you feel that sense of wonder that's maybe beyond the, your chosen discipline?
2: Yeah, there are a few things. and And I think to get philosophical for uh, and Tony Robbins-ish for a second, I think that life has to be about all of us finding what those things are. Now for me, one of the two things is travel. For me, seeing the wonders of the world, and I've been very lucky, I've been to 60 countries performing my show, but seeing Machu Picchu, seeing the pyramids, seeing the Eiffel Tower, these things take my breath away in a way that magic would, or could. And the other one is I love film. I love really terrific film, and I minored film studies in school. So to me, a great movie allows me to suspend my disbelief, get lost in the moment, be shocked when it turns out to be this guy and not this one, and it's his father, and I can't believe it, but it's all a big joke. And these moments have the same revelatory power that the best magic tricks have. But, I mean, isn't, isn't it about finding what those things are for everybody? I mean, that's sort of what it's all about, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, does it does not make you want to learn about film, like the nuts and bolts? I've heard editors say that they can't watch, you know, films anymore without being like, oh, that jump cut there and that pan there. And
2: It's very um, interesting. <laughs> you have essentially two approaches um, to magic when a layperson sees something they don't understand. Um, some of the people... I observe, say, and we had a couple of women today after the tour that I performed a little magic on, say, I, I don't even want to know. You know what? I'm glad I don't know. I love that feeling of not knowing, and they love the mystery. And that's really a beautiful thing when you're comfortable enough in your own skin to sort of say something like, I'm comfortable enough not knowing and not even wanting to know. I wanna I want to retain that mystery and preserve it. Another set of the audience looks at a trick, and has to understand it. They have to know what's going on. They have to see how it's done. What I find very ironic, I observed this in an article at one point, is that those are the people that are problematic for magicians. And yet, they are also the people that make the best magicians. It was a very scary realization when I realized... All these people that annoy me that just want to know so bad how it's done that almost grab me to reach in my pockets and interrogate me and wait outside afterward to ask me just one more question about the trick I did. That was me. I had to know. I had to know. And that desire, that curiosity to know, led to my interest in magic.
1: Um. So, and just thinking about, you know, images of uh, of magicians in popular culture that are kind of like... The losery types and rest of development fans. Job. Good yeah. old joe I felt like I had to get the. But perspective. where did the lighter fluid come from? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know. So he's this character driven, you know, solely by this desperate need for attention. And Human Giant had the, these characters, the Illusionators, who are just like laughable in their over-the-top attempts to cultivate an right. air of mystery that is supposed to seem effortless. Right. Um, yeah. What do you think of those characters?
2: Well. You know, in many ways, um, magic suffers uh, from the practitioners who aren't very good. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of unfair when you think about the fact that if you go out and uh, attend some sort of show and you hear a singer who's awful, you might turn to your friend that you came with and say, boy, she was awful. But you would never think about being so close-minded as to say, man, singers are awful. That singer was awful. But in magic, if you think about it, one bad magician often causes a lot of people to respond with, I hate magicians, this is so dumb, right? There's an old saying that America can only embrace one magician at a time. It passed from Houdini to Blackstone, and, you know, if you come to current times, Henning, and then Copperfield, and then Blaine, and then Chris Angel. Um, Whether or not that's true it does signify that a lot of people are willing to judge our entire art form on one performance or one individual that they might see. Um, So that's sad. The archetype of the magician has changed, and in some ways it hasn't changed. Robert Houdin is my favorite magician of all time. He's this French magician. He was the namesake for Houdini and Houdini's inspiration. And he was this wonderful French magician. He stopped at war with his magic. I mean, he's, he's incredible... Legendary figure. And he was the one who said, I'm not going to go out in front of my audiences in a wizard's cap and a silly looking robe. I'm going to dress cool like them. And in the 1840s, what was cool like them was a tuxedo and a top hat. Why in 2011 people still view magicians as wearing a tuxedo and a top hat, I never know. It's because Many magicians perpetuate the myth and still wear this... St- I try, in, in sort of the same vein as Houdin, to dress like my audience. If it's a formal affair, I'll wear a suit like they'll wear. If it's casual, I'll try and wear jeans and a blazer. You want to appear like them, but with these magical illusions.
0: For some reason, I feel like I want to ask um, whether you've had um, a failure on stage. Um, or a failure that you rescued at the last minute? Um, Are there any horror stories? of
2: You know, not really. Not not one that would satisfy that question. Mm -hmm. And and it, it is something people are very curious about. But I think that part of being a magician is that we think in terms of contingencies. In other words, that would be the worst thing in the world for a trick to just go wrong. But tricks go wrong a lot. Like any other form of entertainment or sports or anything else, things don't always go according to plan. But a skilled magician continues, changes the angle of where it's going, misdirects, and gets out of it somehow. So I have had things go majorly wrong, but I'm proud to say they typically don't look like anything has gone wrong. It's the reason, you know, my girlfriend often asks, Was it a good show? And I'll say, Eh, not my best. And a couple things I wasn't really pleased about. And she'll say, I didn't notice anything wrong. It looked like every time. Well, thank you. It looked like that, but actually there was some panic going on in act two. You know, So part of it is getting out. I mean, the magician's chief advantage over the audience is he knows what's coming and they don't. The element of surprise is a big part of what makes what we do possible.
0: Um, well, I just had one final question, which is um, there's all these great films about magic, like recent ones like The Prestige and The Illusionist. Uh, the illusionist. Yeah. Um, Do you have a favorite film about magic, combining Mm. two of your passions?
2: Interesting. Um, For me, the magic films are mostly uh, a tough experience because they are, in every case, written by non-magicians. And that's okay, but it doesn't ring true. In the same way, I'm sure that a lawyer watches a movie like Michael Clayton or the firm or something with a little bit of a jaded eye because, well, that's not really how court conducts itself, <laughs> and there's not a lot of violence typically, and fist, you know, fighting. and You're and, out of order. Right, <laughs> right, exactly, these kinds of things. So for me, it seems like every author who's ever tried to tackle magic always goes over the same themes, tired themes to me. Things like, Harry was a magician until he discovered Real magic, um, so a magician who stumbles on the real thing, dueling magicians is so popular two magicians competitive it's illusions, but now it's life and death um, and then of course, the struggling magician that's classic archetype so. I enjoyed all of the modern movies to a degree, but it really, there are so many amazing tales, many of which I'll discuss tonight, amazing tragedies, love triangles, crazy affairs, deaths, murders, stage suicides, on stage, crazy things that I don't think we always need to resort to, and then he discovered real magic, Um, but yeah, if I had to pick a favorite, I would go with The Illusionist, because it's the least cliche
1: of, of the
2: modern magic
1: movies. Just thinking about the dynamic of of you and the audience, you know you know something that they don't, and um, kind of the inherent imbalance there and I wonder, like do you have a community of magicians that it 's important for you to maintain because you 're all in on the secret?
2: It is a very delicate situation because um, the relationship between magician and audience can devolve into I know something you don 't know. Mm. And that's not fun. So in a way, a lot of what I spend my time doing is finding ways to express these magic tricks in ways that, yes, you're not going to know how they're done, and that could frustrate you, but it's not a challenge. You're not here to try and figure it out. There is a big magic community, and I I lectured other magicians. There's a great magic community here in San Francisco. Joe Pond's Magic Shop is like a staple of magic. So yeah, we all hang out, and we share secrets, but not all secrets.
1: Thank you so much for chatting with us.
0: Thank you, Josh.
2: No, thank you, guys. It's been (laughs) really fun.
0: And good luck with your show tonight.
1: Thank you. Yeah, good luck.